You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina uh, at 538 and GQ. Michael, I've been telling you over the last couple of weekends to do your homework, to marinate on things that I've said, to really look deep within your soul. I think I jokingly said over the Thanksgiving weekend you should consider whether you are actually jealous of Lucky the Leprechaun up there in Boston and you would just prefer to take his spot. It sounds like you did not spend your Thanksgiving weekend doing that. Is that correct? I, I did not know those were th- not things that I was thinking about, but I appreciate your suggestions as always. Well, hopefully you spent the time with loved ones and had a great time, and uh, hopefully everybody was safe and sound uh, all across our listenership. I actually spent this long Thanksgiving weekend thinking about something that you had said, and that's why I wanted to bring up the whole lucky thing, because uh, the tables have turned here, Michael. I spent quite a bit of time rethinking all of my base level assumptions about the Brooklyn Nets, about writing them off because of Kyrie Irving, about what could happen here during Kevin Durant's thrilling comeback season, which is coming up right around the corner. Uh, For all listeners out there, we have training camps and media days slash media week opening this week. And it got me thinking with Clay Thompson's injury not really being a story, that comeback is kind of out of there. I think it puts even more attention on Kevin Durant's comeback. So I was hoping I could walk you through my thought process here that I spent uh, the weekend digging into, Michael. And you can tell me whether I'm crazy, whether I'm on track, uh, whether I need to rethink anything. And uh, we can just dig in deep into what KD is going to look like here in 2021. What do you think? This is perfect. I am stunned that you want to talk about this and that you've had this change of heart. So I'm very interested in digging into it with you. I'm not going to call it a change of heart. Okay. I just am going to say it's a little (laughs) bit more of a nuanced exploration of the Brooklyn Nets. Because here's the thing. I don't trust Kyrie Irving at all. I think that he is the weakest link within this entire group in terms of he has such a pronounced, important role with that team. And uh, he has a style of play that I'm not convinced is going to be a great fit either with Kevin Durant or with the rest of their roster. He's got a personality that's caused some issues um, for that group previously, such as when he tried to apparently trade half the team uh, last year during the season. And he's also got major health concerns, right? And so these are all things that we've got to look at and say, hey, that's the definition of red flags. At the same time, you know, this is going to be Kevin Durant's team. And I I couldn't believe it, Michael, 540 days since we've seen Kevin Durant on an NBA court, since he went down in the 2019 finals. Uh, That's just a remarkable amount of time. During that layoff, he celebrated his 31st birthday and his 32nd birthday. So he's coming back here kind of at a different stage of his career And yet I think that most of us would assume, correct me if I'm wrong, that we still think he's going to be an all-NBA caliber of guy. Maybe not from day one, but by the end of this season, would you be surprised at all if he's back in the all-NBA mix? I I mean, that's kind of my expectation, right? Like, And just from listening to you, it's basically like Kevin Durant is just going to solve all of your concerns is basically how I'm boiling down your argument. Am I am I wrong no, with that? No, I'm not. I'm not going all the way there. I'm just saying, look, when you're looking at this Eastern Conference, you've got Kevin Durant, 
who's won two titles, two finals MVPs. You've got Giannis, who's never made the finals. You've got Jimmy Butler, who's made the finals once. You've got Joel Embiid, who's never come close to the finals. You've got Tatum, who couldn't hit a shot in the fourth quarter for two straight series. <laughs> uh, uh, no, but you've got a Boston team that's still trying to get over the sure. hump. So sure. if you're just laying all these top contenders, and I would actually take Toronto back out of this mix um, after their offseason, uh, you're, you're laying all these teams side by side. You're saying, which of these players... If healthy, do you trust the most in a playoff series? I think it's Kevin Durant pretty clearly. Which of these guys has the longest, most established track record? I would say it's Kevin Durant uh, pretty clearly. And who's the guy who's the biggest offensive threat? And I would say even though Tatum has really come a long way, um, and you know Jimmy Butler probably had uh, the best season we might ever see from him, especially playoffs last year, mm-hmm. I would still say Kevin Durant's a bigger offensive threat than, than either one of those guys or than Giannis as well. So I just think that we've spent so little time thinking about Kevin Durant. He's been on that back burner that I do think as kind of like a media intelligentsia around basketball, we need to bring this guy back to the front burner and say, look, Yes, he might not be 100% out of the gate. Yes, usually it takes two full years for a guy to kind of regain his quickness and his pop when he's coming off an Achilles injury. But this guy is starting from a very, very, very high level. And he's also going to an Eastern Conference where he should be the best player in the conference if he's healthy. I mean, he doesn't have to deal with LeBron, doesn't have to deal with Kawhi Leonard, doesn't have to deal with James Harden, doesn't have to deal with Steph Curry. This is just a different landscape than we've ever seen this particular guy and this particular talent. And so when we're you know trying to line them all up and say, well, can Kyrie sabotage this whole thing? He definitely could, uh, but the, the baseline for this group needs to be the, an idea that, hey, look, they're going to be uh, a real factor in the Eastern Conference based off of Kevin Durant's talent alone. Are you with me so far? I am with you, yes. And I mean, I think the expectation should be... and respect should be given to KD when he's healthy, that he is the best player in the Eastern Conference. And that's no disrespect to Giannis, two-time reigning MVP. KD just brings a completely different level, as you said. Um, uh, you know, his accomplishments, his resume is just on a completely different track than Giannis is right now in terms of team success. Um, and the thing about KD that's so great is that it's just really easy to build around him and to have a successful roster um, that kind of accentuates his own strengths because, like, offensively, he's just an offensive into himself. And even coming off this Achilles injury, he's a seven-footer who can shoot threes, like, effortlessly. <laughs> um, there's really no one who can bother him. He can post up. He can draw two. Um, he should still be a force off the bounce. Um, he's the maybe the best spot-up three-point shooter uh, at his position ever. <laughs> he's up there. Um, so, like, a, a lot of that is not really anything to even do with athleticism. It's just more skill and panache and, and, and feel. And, like, I, I, I'm expecting him to be the best player in the Eastern Conference is basically what I'm trying to say. Okay, excellent. And, look, there are some other concerns that we're going to get to here with the Brooklyn Nets on, in terms of how this thing could go wrong. But mm-hmm. before we get there, I don't think it's just a matter of KD, right? Now, we had talked about, hey, could the Nets go and trade uh, for James Harden? You know, would they be able to put together a big three and form just a crazy scoring duo between Harden and Kevin Durant? Let's table that idea and say it just doesn't happen. They're running out of time here before the start of the season, right? Let's just go with the group they have currently. 
if and we're, we're talking strictly on paper here, not personality concerns, not the chemistry stuff that we've kind of dug into previously, but just strictly on paper, when your starting lineup is potentially Kyrie Irving, Karis LeVert, a very talented scorer in and of himself, Joe Harris, an ideal kind of 3 and D wing, Kevin Durant, the best player in the Eastern Conference, and then Jared Allen or DeAndre Jordan, depending on how they do it in the middle, who has a better starting lineup than Brooklyn in the Eastern Conference, a five-man group, than that group that I just named? I, who else would you even have in the mix uh, compared to them? Because I'm, I'm thinking not only does Brooklyn have the potential to have the best player in the conference, are they in the conversation to have the best starting lineup in the conference? You know, when you pose this question to me, Ben, um, I initially, like, the first thing that I, I tried to do was actually construct what would be Brooklyn's starting five. And, like, the five that you threw out there could be the starting five, but, like, I would not be surprised if Landry Shamit was in the starting five. I would not be surprised if instead of Karis LeVert, Spencer Dinwiddie was in the starting five. I, I think that there's just so many options here, and that kind of speaks to your point, that this team is just, like, loaded with shooting and just offensive firepower. Defensively, it's a big, like, question mark for me. I mean, Kyrie Irving is a huge question mark. I think Joe Harris is a little bit better than people give him credit for. KD on the defensive end is going to be a question mark. Um, and Karis or Spencer, whoever you want to put in that other spot, is you know not necessarily above average, but will work pretty hard in their system. I, I guess like I, I think offensively, it's this is easily they they'll easily have the best starting five. Defensively, it gets a little muddier for me. But just comparing it to some other ones around the Eastern Conference, like every other really good team or great team in the East that should be contending in for an Eastern Conference final spot is like we we have a big question in their starting five um and so well go through them go through them real quick like what's boston's question what's philly's question what's miami's question what's milwaukee's question sure so let me start with boston i mean right off the jump you have kemba walker who brad stevens recently said is probably not going to start the season so that throws a wrench in what they want to do right there but i mean you have jalen tatum and then all of a sudden it just gets like who is who else is there like even assuming if Kemba is healthy, you have, uh, are we starting Tristan Thompson or Daniel Tice? Who is the power forward? Is it Grant Williams? Are we going small with Marcus Smart? Like, I, I don't know what Boston's doing. Are they going to start Romeo Langford or Aaron Nismith, the rookie, to get some shooting and some athleticism on the wing? Like, I, I just, I think there's a lot of questions there with Boston that are really fascinating. Um you have Should the have heat. kept Hayward, huh? Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, yeah, we're going to talk about that later. But um, you have the Miami Heat with, uh, you know, they basically look like a completely different team from the regular season to the bubble. And we don't know if they're going to start Myers Leonard again. Like, they started Bam at the five. They went to the finals. Are they going to revert back to Myers Leonard? Are they going to play Mo Harkless in the starting five? Like, is Goran going to go back to the bench? Is Tyler Hero going to go to the starting five because he was so excellent in the conference finals? Like, Miami is just, is there's a lot in flux there. Um, The Bucks. I don't know who their fifth starter is straight up. Like, yeah, that's Giannis. the team with the, the cleanest hole, right? It was supposed to be Bogdan. RIP to the Bogdan lineup there <laughs> yeah, in Milwaukee. Uh, and the, the pieces that they picked up as replacements like Forbes or whoever else, I mean, they, that's still just a pretty glaring hole. They probably go with mm-hmm. DiVincenzo, don't you think? Yeah, 
Yeah, I have DiVincenzo, Lopez, Middleton, Drew, and then Giannis, and that's that's formidable for sure. I don't think it has enough shooting necessarily. I mean, maybe it, that doesn't matter, but I think defensively they'll be a monster, but shooting is a total question mark. I mean, Brooke Lopez shot like 30% from behind the arc last year. Drew Holiday, I think, is a little bit of a... His reputation precedes him in a negative way as a shooter, and Giannis, we all know what's going on there. Um, so shooting, everyone loves shooting. You know, if you want to play five out and you don't have three-point shooters, that could be interesting. Um, the last team I want to mention here is actually maybe my favorite. I don't know if they'll start with this fivesome, but the Philadelphia 76ers have a group that I'm just dying to see. Uh, it's Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, uh, Curry, Danny Green, and Tobias Harris. That group is just, I mean, it's night and day compared to what they were trying to do last season. They have a lot of shooting. They have the two Titanic talents and Simmons and Embiid. Um, I think it, it, it it's more clean in a lot of ways on both ends for everybody. And uh, yeah, that's that group is pretty terrifying to me. Yeah. So the only question there is basically whether they decide to keep Curry as a, a you know a bench scorer maybe or you know to me I would start him it makes sense I would try to keep him on the court with Simmons as much as possible because yeah. I think that yeah. fits really good so I don't know what the question would be then I think that's pretty much their starting group and that's an interesting group um, still not totally sure I trust the the big two there in Philly together um, you know I, I know people love to cite their on off metrics together Simmons and Embiid and they just during the playoffs, they, they have not been able to sustain whatever they did during their best stretches during the regular season. So it, that's kind of still a jury is still out situation for me. But I guess my takeaway from the rundown of these lineups is that Brooklyn's in the mix with everybody. You know, I think your concerns about their defense are absolutely fair. Uh, we also have questions. What does the offense look like when you've got a first year coach and Steve Nash? What does mm-hmm. the offense look like if Kyrie Irving is not 100 percent or if he is, you know, just doing too much and and uh, it's coming at the expense of his teammates, uh, there's also concerns. All right, well, are guys like Karis LeVert and Dinwiddie going to be able to buy into to roles after having expanded opportunities uh, during Durant's absence and, and Irving's absence? Those are all fundamental major questions. But if we're saying strictly on paper, Brooklyn starting five to me matches up with just about every group you just listed. Yeah, um, I, I mean, okay. that's... So you're with me. So then the next step, Michael, would be to say, let's look at their bench, right? Uh-huh. And when you start yeah. to look at their bench and you say, okay, well, what is Brooklyn working with after their offseason? Uh, they bring in a Bruce Brown from Detroit. They bring in Landry Shamit, who you mentioned. And I do think he's a starting caliber player. If they wanted to start him, he would actually uh-huh. be a pretty good fit. Um, him and Joe Harris, that's you know, that's a lot of shooting. That's a lot of unselfishness. That's a lot of balance. Um, so you can play those guys with your stars for sure. Um, they've still got Torian Prince, Tyler Johnson. They've got DeAndre Jordan or, or sort of what's left of his game. Maybe he comes back a little bit more motivated uh, with KD healthy this year. That's possible. Um, but that's a lot of bodies. You know, Now we're talking about eight, nine, ten guys that they can play, proven players. Um, when you look at their group, who do you feel like is deeper than Brooklyn uh, in the Eastern Conference? We saw some depth issues creep up and grab Boston during last year's playoffs, uh, in part because of injury. I think Toronto's depth took a hit. They were probably the deepest team, uh, you could argue, last year in the East, and uh, they lose both Ibaka and Marcus mm-hmm. All. You look at Milwaukee, completely redid its bench this offseason. Uh, and then Miami, actually, I think that they had some pretty solid depth, just a balanced group where they're going, you know, 8, 9, 10, um, you know, pretty regularly, but not necessarily, you know, impact star level guys. They, they lose a player in, in Derek Jones Jr. 
um, and a few other pieces around the edges, a Jay Crowder as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is Brooklyn in this conversation as the deepest team in the Eastern Conference too? Purely off talent, I, I think it's hard to argue that, yes, they are the deepest team. My question is just with regards to fit and which lineups are going to make the most sense. How do you balance offense and defense with the group, with the players that are here? I mean, one guy who you didn't even mention, I don't believe, is Jeff Green, who looked really good uh, in Houston last year when he was basically asked to play the five, which might be his position at this point in his career <laughs> so like and you already have Jared Allen right now and DeAndre Jordan as you said so like I think they have a lot of talented players I think kind of sliding them into sense sensible roles is going to be very interesting and I you know that's going to be the 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 big question that that that, that uh, Steve Nash really needs to answer well look now you're seeing why I had this whole come to Jesus thing over the weekend Michael so now we've said Brooklyn's got the best player in the conference They've got one of the best starting lineups in the conference, and they've got arguably right in the mix with the deepest roster in the in the conference, right? That's a lot of checks when you're looking down the checklist of like, okay, do we consider a team a contender or not? They're, they're kind of acing this test so far. So at this point, I'm curious, based on what we've agreed to, and I think you're on the same page with me as, as we're going through this, what is Brooklyn's best case scenario, right? Like, obviously, it's going to have to involve KD being very healthy and in a good spot. Um, and and kind of ramp fully up by the time the playoffs roll around. But would you consider them finals contenders? Do you think they're going to make uh, you know a, a push like like that? Would that be too much too soon? What do you view as their ceiling? I mean, Steve Nash said it um, on in a television interview a little while ago. Like the expectation is to win the championship, and wow. so that is definitely their best case scenario. Um, I mean, I might not have said that if I was him, to be honest, (laughs) you would have, you would have taken the Paul George route. Well, (laughs) I just might've been a little bit more careful. You know, it's, that's, that's heaping a lot onto Kevin's shoulders. I think it's heaping a lot onto Kyrie's shoulders too, isn't it? Well, yeah, maybe, but I mean, these are max players who view themselves as like the best players at their position who came together in Brooklyn to win the championship. So like when you've invested however many millions of dollars in Joe Harris and, uh, you know, you have Karis LeVert in development and, and Spencer Dinwiddie, you have this team that's really talented and you have all these assistant coaches flocking to Brooklyn, like the expectation is obviously to to win the championship. And I think that that is the best case scenario easily. I think that it, the championship is attainable for this team. I mean... If I'm just looking at like what the ceiling is on the roster right now, I mean, the ceiling is best offense in the NBA, right? And Kevin Durant winning the MVP and Kevin Durant winning finals MVP. I think those are possibilities where I come in and again, and I'm just going to repeat this as long as we're talking about this team is defense. Like that's the question for me. It was a question last year for them. It's why they went after and signed Iman Shumpert. They had like no defensive stoppers on the roster. Um, so that just tells you kind of how desperate things were. But like if they're able to somehow scrounge together a league average defense and like a top three, top two offense, like that is definitely a championship contender when you look at the personnel and you look at what teams will have to match up against in a playoff series where there's just like no answer for KD or Kyrie Irving. 
Yeah, they really don't have plus defenders, right? I mean, I even think, you know, Jared Allen, I think that he's, you know, a force around the rim, but I don't view him as this major incredible defensive piece. I think that he gets pushed around in the paint a lot. He doesn't always hold his spot. Um, I understand people were upset that he didn't play over DeAndre Jordan. I think that those feelings were completely warranted. He should have been starting, but I don't view him as like this great backline, you know, anchor of a, of a great defense. Uh, KD would be the obvious, you know, candidate as a plus defender. We're going to see how he moves around uh, the court, you know, laterally after his injury. And the other guys, it's sort of like, you know, take or leave. I mean, none of them are are absolute standouts there. So it's a a huge question. To me, the even bigger question, though, it's the chemistry factor, right? Does this Mm -hmm. become like last year's Clippers, where you've got the two new guys coming in, uh, the older players kind of still, uh, you know, lingering from the previous regime? Is there friction? Can't everybody get on the same page? Do the personalities align? does style of play align? I think that's sort of the biggest question I've got. One question I'm not as concerned about, Michael, is the coaching issue. Um, now that the dust has settled, I look back on the entire last two years for Brooklyn where, you know, Kenny Atkinson gets fired and all of NBA media Twitter starts crying on, on social media simultaneously <laughs> on his behalf. And then there's this huge outrage and surprise, Steve Nash, first time head coach and all that. When you look at that transition, I think that was a a huge win, Michael. Uh, I look at Steve Nash being a much better fit for managing superstar level players. I look at him as a very high IQ player who's been around the game for decades. I look at his staff as being fairly well, you know, accomplished over the course of their careers. And I think they're pretty, they're in a good spot overall from a coaching standpoint. And I certainly don't think Kenny Atkinson was going to bring this group to the promised land. If they're supposed to be a title team, it wasn't going to be him. His personality is just his entire approach, the raw, raw stuff. All of that was not going to get it done. So um, is Nash going to be, you know, coach of the year, his first season? Is he the next Steve Kerr? Okay, probably not. But I think he's, I don't think that that's nearly as big of a question as some of these other like interpersonal issues within the roster. What do you think? I'm stunned by what you're saying right now, knowing you and knowing what you value. I mean, I have Steve Nash as like a just naturally one of the bigger question marks for this team. And that ties into my concerns for the defense. It's not like Steve Nash is known for defense or Amari Stoudemire or Mike D'Antoni. I mean, like, well, can I, I the, can I put it this way? Like, sure. if it doesn't work in Brooklyn. I don't think it's going to be a coaching failure, right? Like if Kyrie just can't get on the right page offensively or if he just keeps getting destroyed defensively, I'm not sure that's going to be a scheme to save them, right? Like their formula and their approach is just going to be like you're saying, all offense, uh, try to just overwhelm the opposition, be super, super efficient, taking threes from all different spots, letting Katie and Kyrie you know, show what they're capable of doing. And if that works, then people are going to give, uh, you know, Steve Nash some of the credit for it, but they're also going to point to like, hey, it's a freewheeling style. The players are involved. Very similar to Houston, where like D'Antoni gets some credit, but most of the credit goes to Harden ultimately, right? Because he's the one out there carrying the mm-hmm. huge burden and, uh, you know, putting up the gigantic numbers. Now, if it doesn't work, I don't feel, I don't think people are going to turn around and be like, well, if Steve Nash had just stayed up until 4.30 a.m., he would have been able to find a way to turn you know, Kyrie Irving and Spencer Dinwiddie into a lockdown defense. I think people are just going to be like, yeah, no, you know, Brooklyn just kind of their talent, uh-huh. you know, their their personnel was who it was and, and they went as far as they go. Does that make sense? No, that makes total sense. I, I think that, you know, when I look at Steve Nash as a question mark, I think about the playoffs because if we're going to call this team a championship contender, which we should, you have to envision Steve Nash 
on one sideline coaching his team and Nick Nurse coaching the opponent or Brad Stevens coaching the opponent or Eric Spolstra coaching the opponent in a seven game series. So like out thinking and out maneuvering those guys with regards to who is playing when, like I think lineups and the delineation of minutes is going to be a big hurdle for Steve Nash. And especially in a playoff series, like we all know that Kevin Durant's going to play however many minutes. Kyrie Irving's going to play however many, however many minutes. But then beyond that, there's just so many questions that may not even be resolved throughout this like truncated regular season. So like that's going to be that's difficult for any head coach to deal with, I think. But like, will he weigh to or will he lean more towards offense when he's when it's like crunch time in the last five minutes? And is he just like I'm going to play KD at the five? And Landry Shamit and Joe Harris and Kyrie and Spencer Din- Dinwiddie are going to be on the floor with him. Like, I, I and that could be a to- that could totally backfire with that team just giving up buckets left and right. So, I think that that's where I'm just a little weary of Steve Nash, and I want to see how he kind of treats five man units in in the postseason. Fantastic point. Completely fair uh, doubt or criticism, whatever you want to call it. Do you like the idea of KD at the five? I could see it working in certain situations. Like you don't want KD setting up the wall uh, against Giannis. You know, that's not ideal. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's ideal. But if you're going against Boston, when they went to their small lineups with guys like a Grant Williams or whoever else it might be in the middle there, um, Mm -hmm. or when Miami basically has Bam off the court, uh, I think KD can get by against any of that group. You know, if Dwight Howard is uh, is Philly's backup center, you know, when Embiid's off the court, can't you go small against that group? Um, I, I kind of like that idea for them. I, maybe it would save him a little bit of work. He doesn't have to cover as much ground defensively on the perimeter. It might be a little bit more of a pound in, in certain situations against bigger front lines. But I think that's a legitimate lineup look for them. No, yeah, I think that KD is going to play a lot at the five. I think we'll see. You know, I mentioned Jeff Green before. I think one of the reasons you signed him is he can play the quote-unquote five and, you know, guard or try to guard someone like Dwight Howard and still be able to shoot threes, which is something DeAndre and Jared Allen can't really do. So that those lineups could be interesting where it's kind of just like, you know, Jeff Green's the five, but KD's really the five um, or really the tallest guy on the court. Um, but yeah, it, there's just, I'm just looking at this roster, man, there's so many options. I like, I, if I have to pick one team that's, that's like really good that I think is going to make a trade before the deadline, just looking at just the clutter here and just, there's so much talent and so much of the talent needs the ball in its hands. Like the Brooklyn Nets are the team that's going to have to make the trade. Yeah, no, I think that's very possible too. And that could be another reason why we're sleeping them on, on them a little bit, right? Because yeah, there could yeah. be another like big time move. And I mean, the Harden one got my attention for sure, because I was like, well, that's going to be a complete game changer for the Eastern Conference, right? If that takes place. But there could be a more modest version of a similar, you know, bundle a bunch of guys and assets together and, and go for it, move available to them. I would love to see it. So I guess here's here's kind of my final question on Brooklyn. I mean, we, we've laid out the cases for them. We've explained some of the reasons why it might not work. I'll be honest, deep in my gut, I still don't trust them, Michael. After all the positive things I've just <laughs> said, I still look at Kyrie and I just think he's going to find a way to just make this not look as good in practice as it looks on, on paper. So that that's sort of where I come back to. But I'm wondering if you like fast forward six months and we're getting towards the playoffs in May, 
Is it possible that KD's comeback season here winds up capturing people's attention a little bit? Is it going to finally be time to be cool to be a Brooklyn Nets fan or to finally kind of buy into this group and and what they've tried to do? Is their offensive style going to be able to connect with people's hearts and and all the people who love Kyrie Irving's bucket getting and um, all of Kevin Durant's, uh, you know, skills that maybe they resented slightly when he was playing on a super team, but now he's on a team that's, you know, not quite so super and they can maybe fall back and love. Like, is there going to be a real third chapter here for Kevin Durant, the player, and maybe a new awakening to, to Brooklyn because it just hasn't happened for that franchise. You know, everybody thought there was going to be this great buzz when they moved from New Jersey and it didn't really sustain. Um, you know, Kyrie kind of had an amazing season opener last year and then the season fizzled out. They've had a lot of trials and tribulations over the last, uh, you know, 10 years. We don't have to run through all of them. But I'm wondering, is this finally the year that Brooklyn turns the corner potentially? Can you see it? Honestly, answering this question makes me sad because as someone who has attended countless Brooklyn Nets games, who I can literally see Barclays Center from my window here where I am recording this very podcast, and knowing that I'm not going to probably be able to like watch all of this take this unfold uh, with like a packed house and actually see an energized crowd and an energized building is like such a bummer. But <laughs> but besides that point, um, I can totally see like them being one of the more thrilling, um, enjoyable, aesthetically pleasing teams in basketball. And they're the darlings. They're going to be the darlings, Michael. I don't know. I, I can't really call. I'm sorry. Like, I, I associate the word grumpy too much with Kyrie and KD for me to go there. But I think on the court, like, if they just are, are feasting in transition and their identity is just launching more threes than anybody else, which is definitely a possibility, and they just look like they're having fun, like, on the floor and they're winning, then I can see them, yeah, you know, uh, being very fun to root for, I guess, for like the casual fan. But like, I don't know. The word darling, I, I just can't really go there for a team that has like. No, KD there's a lot of baggage. Yeah, there's a lot of baggage <laughs> to go to the darling route, but maybe like a league pass favorite too, right? Like a team where you're always sort of like, what are these guys up to? What kind of scoring nights are they having? I hope this is how it plays out, by the way, because um, I was skeptical from the start about their decision. Uh, I think that when you look at the last 18 months, really since Kevin got hurt, things have broken great for them. You know, you, you look at Boston losing Hayward, you look at Toronto losing their front court pieces, Miami standing pat, no major additions, Indiana standing pat, no major additions, uh, Philly kind of tweaking its formula, but not necessarily adding a big time talent, Milwaukee getting Drew Holiday, but not really putting together the full lineup. When you look at that competitive landscape in the East, it's shaping up kind of perfectly for Kevin Durant's comeback season. No major star goes from the Western Conference to the Eastern Conference uh, this offseason. I think it's right there for the taking. The door is open. He really couldn't have asked for more. And you also factor in this idea that, you know, typically guys miss a year uh, for their uh, Achilles injury. And so he was originally on track to try to come back, you know, probably for the the start of the normal season in October. So he got an extra two plus months of rest and rehabilitation time. So he's almost 18 months into his recovery, which, you know, gives him a little bit of a head start compared to, you know, a typical player coming back from this injury. You add all that up. I think it's, you know, 
pretty favorable. I mean, it was a horrible situation. I called it a basketball tragedy when it happened, when he when he tore his Achilles in that finals in that particular moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, like this this comeback tour is launching with a lot of positive momentum, and I hope it stays that way. And I'll be watching every single one of their media day interviews, hoping that they don't screw this up, right? Hoping that we're not feeling the tension between guys or, uh, you know, we're, we're getting guys who are territorial, who want the ball or whatever else. I, I hope that the guys on that roster realize they're playing with a guy in Kevin Durant who's more talented than anybody else they've played with in their entire lives, right? I mean, pretty much everyone besides Kyrie Irving, who I've, of course played with LeBron, uh, is going to be in that situation. And I hope that there's a, an adjustment factor mentally for all those guys realizing uh, the opportunity that's ahead of them. I still don't trust them, Michael. They're probably going out in the second round, uh, but I think that they're going to be a really fun and intriguing team to watch as we go forward. And I do think it's important we all kind of uh, second guess our assumptions about that group because they're coming in this season in a much different place than they were when they started when they first put uh, you know Katie and Kyrie together in the summer of 2019. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck, so you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, Can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd. American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. All right, let's shift gears here slightly because I know you're writing a story here this week about the Atlanta Hawks, sort of the big spenders uh, of the offseason, wouldn't you say? And they bring in Bogdan Bogdanovich, uh, you know, RIP to his Milwaukee Bucks tenure, as we mentioned. They bring in Danilo Gallinari, plucking him from Oklahoma City in free agency, paying him about $20 million a year. Um, and they also bring in Rajon Rondo, uh, NBA champion, two-time NBA champion, right? Uh, That's Boston right. Celtics and Los Angeles Lakers to go uh, provide some, you know, veteran uh, guile or whatever else they're they're trying to have him do there. We got a question from Zach. He writes, "Is there any way my beloved and consistently mediocre Atlanta Hawks will actually be the team to cash in on a superstar trade?" With a combination of vets on digestible non-max contracts and intriguing young players who have shown varying degrees of performance and promise, aren't the Hawks the perfect team to put together a monster package and still be competitive? They've got John Collins, Onyeka Okongwu, uh, the rookie from USC they drafted, DeAndre Hunter, and Kevin Horter, plus some future picks. Isn't that package enough to snag a guy like a James Harden or a Ben Simmons if the situation was right? 
the team could give up all those assets and still be fine in the short term because of the vets they added this summer and last year. And there are definitely worse places in the world to be famous than Atlanta. So, Michael, uh, Zach is not content with Atlanta's shopping spree. He's hoping for something even bigger and better. He wants more superstar talent uh, around Trey Young. I understand where Zach's coming from. Before we get to sort of his hypothetical situation, what did you make of uh, Atlanta's uh, offseason? You know, like scale of 1 to 10, they spent a lot of money. We imagine their offense is going to get meaningfully better. They were bottom five last year in offense, and they're adding uh, Gallinari and Bogdanovich. I mean, that should definitely help. But how well did Atlanta do? I love just about everything the Atlanta Hawks did. I knew that, you know, like we they, they sort of telegraphed their desire to get immediately better last year when they gave up a first round pick to get Clint Capella kind of out of nowhere at the trade deadline. So right there, it was kind of like we saw the writing on the wall. We knew that they wanted to win sooner than later. And this wasn't going to be sort of an organic slow roll where you are just bad piling up lottery picks around Trey Young and just getting as many talented pieces as you can. That's obviously not the route that they were that they wanted to take. And so you have all this cap space, basically more cap space than any other team, and you spend it on what I thought was just like a fascinating selection of players. Um, you know, it, 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 it you mentioned kind of the offense and you know they're 25th or 26th last season in offensive rating but even with Trey Young on the court uh they were barely above league average so obviously they had to make some improvements they were the worst three-point shooting team in the league so they add two guys who uh you know there are there were six players last season who attempted at least five threes and shot over 40 percent behind the arc and Gallo and Bogdanovich were both on that list so the way I basically look at it is like building around Trey Young is this predicament that may not have an answer because of just how bad he is on the defensive end and what I saw that Atlanta do is just say okay screw that for the most part we're just going to have the most explosive offense imaginable so I respect that in the short term and if you're going to try to make the playoffs and that's your goal I think they did an excellent job trying to achieve it. So where does their offense land next year? Because I think that, you know, Trey Young put up incredible stats. People fell in love with it. They voted him into the All-Star game as a starter, which I just did not understand. But it did not translate (laughs) to team success. It just didn't, right? I mean, a bottom five offense, doesn't matter how good your stats are individually. If that's where your team is performing, you are not on the same level as other guys who are putting up those same numbers, right? Not all stats are created equal. And, and so in his case, I think there's still a lot of burden of proof for him to be able to to translate his shot-making ability and his just wizard-like passing and his ability to, you know, operate in the pick and roll and everything else into a high-efficiency, consistent offense. Now, he's going to have a lot better weapons to work with. The spacing is going to be awesome between Bogdanovich, uh, you know, Gallinari, and then you've got, you know, Clint Capella putting pressure on the rim and, and, and kind of creating gravity with his ability to, to finish lobs and dunks. There should be great opportunities for everybody all over the court for Atlanta. How good can their offense be? So I wrote in my article, and I, 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 as I was writing this, I could see you rolling your eyes uh, 3,000 miles away. But Michael, don't be afraid of me. Come on now. You can't let me inside <laughs> your head now. Oh, no. It's going to print, so don't worry about it. But I think if they don't land in the top 10, it's a total catastrophe. Like wow. I expect, I expect them to be in the top ten, and getting even bolder here, Ben. 
I think that they have a shot to be top three in the Eastern Conference. What do you think about that? Well, who else is your top three in the East right now? Well, so Brooklyn and Milwaukee. There's Brooklyn, Milwaukee. I think you have to put some respect on Miami's name, um, but like, I think Atlanta will flirt with the top three in the Eastern Conference, and so like, I you know I I say this as someone who I think I'm a little higher on Trey Young's offensive game than you are, and I, I I marvel at what he accomplished with the pieces that were around him last season. And if you just go back and you watch, like, the, I know you probably well, didn't do this, they're but... they're playing pickup games last year. I mean, basically. Well, uh, okay, yes, fair. Um, but if you go back and just watch the film, like, the, 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 the players who were around Trey Young are just, like, not great. And the plays that he's making, the shots he's hitting are stupendous i mean like his ability to get in the paint and draw fouls at the rim was incredible so you add bogdanovich who's a a great spot up three-point shooter but also can do a lot of other things um work off screens uh, uh go off the bounce and kind of create his own in between opportunities you have danilo gallinari who had the highest offensive rating in the entire nba last season and was one of the more efficient pick-and-pop three-point shooters. And I just think that everything complements everything else so well. And one of the things, like, you know, John Collins might not be around for this. We'll kind of see. Travis Schlenk, the GM of the Hawks, has said that uh, John Collins will start over Gallinari, but he did not say uh, who will finish games, which I think is a pretty interesting kind of situation there but John Collins shot 42 and a half percent on spot up threes last year which is a stat uh, that I, I think goes a little bit under the radar so you can have these lineups where it's just like bombers from deep and Kevin Herter uh, is one of the young snipers in the NBA as well so like I I'm just fascinated to see how all this works I think when when Trey Young hit the bench last year their offense completely fell apart and having someone like Rondo come in and just run the offense with I think capable um, depth and you you know you can stagger it so that Bogdanovich is on the floor with Rondo or Gallo's always on the floor with Rondo that sort of thing um, I, I just I think that like this team is not going to fall off a cliff offensively and it's going to be like when it's at its best offensively it's going to be so deadly uh, you're making some really, really compelling arguments. The The fit with Collins definitely has raised a lot of eyebrows. I think people are wondering, well, is he just going to get traded? Because that way, mm-hmm. you know, Gallinari is more natural at the four. I think if you tried to slide Gallinari down to the three and Bogdanovich to the two, um, I mean, that it's not impossible to make that work, but I don't think that's ideal defensively. It might not be the best balanced lineup, but still you would have a, a lot of spacing. Um, and you would have, you know, threats at all five positions offensively uh, in, in their own way. I mean, Capella is not some amazing scoring threat, but he will punish you if you try to double or, you know, he can cut down to the, he can cut through the paint and uh, take a, you know, lob and, and finish it. Um, yeah, I, I think that maybe 10 to 15 for their offense would be reasonable. I mean, going from 25th to 10th would be a huge, huge leap. You don't see that very often in one year, but I think that's sort of what Atlanta was getting out by spending all that money is that's what they want to do. Now, defensively, they're still a train wreck, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, defensively is like whatever. Um, I think, you know, you add Chris Dunn, who was second in steal rate last season and probably should have been an all-defensive team member. Uh, Rondo's defense in the bubble was a lot better than the Rondo defense that we'd seen over the past five or so years. 
Um, so that's great. And then they draft Okungwu, who's basically this mobile big who um, should definitely help shore up the, the, the back line a little bit. And then we obviously Capella, who switches more than any big and who can protect the rim a little bit. So like, I think they have some pieces, but generally speaking, what their personnel decisions told me this offseason was that they don't really care that much about defense. I mean, like just financially, the investments were in offense and like yeah. Gallinari and, and my takeaway was, look, we've got a lot of cap space. We don't have enough cap space to fix all of our problems. So we're going to we're going to try to fix our offensive problems problems and then worry about the defense later. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it's possible in a couple of years when guys like Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter are a little bit more established and older and comfortable and all that. You know, you throw in Okongwu, okay, maybe you've got a more balanced, you know, two-way uh, core group. I just don't think they're ready yet. And so that could hold them back. But when you're describing the possibility of a top 10 offense, are you penciling them into the playoffs? I am penciling them into the playoffs, assuming, you know, um, everyone stays healthy, including Trey Young, who just kind of bowling balls himself around and is <laughs> bound to miss some time pretty soon. Um, but like, I think their ceiling is, you know, probably a seven seed, seven or eight. Like that seems totally legitimate to me. Um, well, I, you if know, they the, get there, does that justify what they did this offseason? Well, in the eyes of their ownership, yeah, it does. Because clearly just making the playoffs is what the mandate was. It was not about long-term prosperity. It was about, uh, like, I don't even really understand what the financial benefit is necessarily when you can't have, assuming that you can't, we still can't have fans in arenas. But, like, they wanted to make the playoffs. They wanted to leap forward, spend their cap space, not, you know, be a dumping ground and take on assets and kind of be more patient with this thing. So, like, I, if I were the owner, I, I probably wouldn't have been this aggressive necessarily. But if you're going to be aggressive, like, you better make the playoffs, and I think they will. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a tricky one to answer, though, because, like, that's it's just like that's the owner's mandate, right? Yeah, well, I also think there's a Trey Young mandate here too, right? I mean, he was frustrated at times last season. I mean, wore it with his body language, just, you know, looked rightfully so, just upset with the the guys who were around him, you know, playing mm-hmm. lots of minutes and just not being ready to do it. So you feel some pressure to make sure he, he feels like he's taking progress in his career and he wants to be happy and, and locked in there long-term as your franchise guy. I also think you face a relevance question, right, in that market. Like they're so far behind football that they're just kind of constantly battling for, um, you know, oxygen and attention. And you have to do something to get on people's radars. And I think also the reason why their spending spree was smarter than I maybe initially gave it credit for when I was thinking about it is that had they not spent the money and just kind of waited another year, you know, pulled like a New York Knicks and signed a bunch of, you know, lame guys to one-year contracts and just try to come mm-hmm. back next summer, the promise of guys actually wanting to go there when there was a lot more teams potentially with flexibility and a lot of bigger stars on the market is much lower, right? It's sort of like you want to be... Uh, shopping when you actually have a chance to buy something. They're sort of like Black Friday shopping sales this summer, right? It's like, all right, well, this might not be um, the the best television on the market. Danilo Gallinari is not Giannis Antetokounmpo, right? But I'm getting him for you know a discount. I'm actually able to take him home. I don't have to wait in line or whatever else it might be. Like I'm I'm actually having something I can claim as mine. And for a team in Atlanta's position, that's no guarantee, right? So when you just play that rollover game, rollover, rollover. You could roll over 
uh, indefinitely, right? I mean, the Knicks can hand out as many series of one-year contracts as they want, just waiting for a savior to come along. That savior might never come along. So at least Atlanta has a more cohesive plan. At least they made some targeted additions that somewhat made sense. And they should show some real improvement on offense, and that should make them more entertaining. It should make Trey Young happier. Um, and it should make them more competitive. So I don't, you know, when, when I'm looking back on it, I didn't necessarily love Gallinari at his price. Uh, I liked the idea of Bogdan at his price. I thought that was fine. I didn't love the Rondo move. Didn't make a ton of sense to me. Um, you know, I just feel like he's not going to be the same guy in Atlanta that he was in LA. Just that, that's sort of been his track record when he's in, you know, super locked in when in winning environments and then maybe not quite so much in, in mm-hmm. kind of shakier environments. But you add all that up, I still think to me it's like a seven or eight out of 10 on the offseason ranking because uh, they accomplished some goals and the alternatives of, you know, waiting as I'm describing were not better. Yeah. I mean, I, can we real, real quick pivot just to talking about this, uh, you know, Zach's actual question, <laughs> which was, um, are the Hawks in a position to actually trade for um, like a more superstar established player? Um, this was actually a footnote in my column. So shout out to Zach. Great minds think alike. Um, but I, I want your feed feedback on this, Ben. Like, do you think that, you know, should a Ben Simmons be... I don't think James Harden is someone who would makes at all any sense for Atlanta to target and to give up a bunch of assets. But, like, should... Ben Simmons become available. I think that that is a fascinating proposition and and that Atlanta, because of uh, Bogdanovich, who I think would have to be involved in just about any of these deals, like he makes sense in so many different places. So Bogdanovich plus intriguing future assets who were high lottery picks is like a really, like that's a tantalizing like package. And if you do it, if you were to kind of cobble that together before John Collins is um you know his extent they pay him his extension um like on his current deal john collins being moved is very intriguing at that price point as well so like i think that i could see them making waves i guess i should say like i would not put it entirely past them to say that they're just sitting pat here no look they have a lot of chips there's no question you and zach are both right to point that out they could go in a lot of different directions they're very flexible here right now currently at the deadline or heading into next summer all of it i think the whole thing comes down to being uh, like an ultimatum on trey young right stars are going to have to want to play with them that's the the number one factor when you have a franchise player you're building around him if you're going to try to go out there and, and invest all sorts of resources and bring in another star that guy has to want to play with Trey. And to me, I still think it's an open question if Trey Young's contemporaries would view him as a player that they want to necessarily play with or tie their careers to. And it's not necessarily a knock. It's just saying, you know, he was 21 years old last season. They hardly won at all. Um, he was doing virtually everything, and it didn't pay off with team success on the offensive end. Uh, he has, you know, a tendency to shoot very deep threes, which as we've seen with some other guys, and when they're high volume, high usage players, and their shot selections a little bit looser than the average role players, that can create friction, um, especially if you're not winning, right? You know, guys look around and saying, what shot are you well, taking? What's going on here? I'm not saying he can't answer these questions this year, he's going to be better positioned to answer them than ever before. And I think that if it works, then people are going to get a little bit more excited about the Hawks possibly as a destination. But I think right now it's it's still very much, Trey Young, you have to prove it. 
you're not Luca. I think guys right now want to go play with Luca <laughs> already, right? And those guys are going to be linked forever because of that uh-huh. trade. But I think Luca's yep. already answered all these questions. He's shown that he can have success in the playoffs. He's shown that he makes his teammates better. He's shown that he can lead an offense at an elite level. Uh, he's shown that his personality can carry an organization, all that stuff. And, you know, Trey Young is is working from a disadvantage because he is such a minus defensively. He has to be even more of an impact player on offense to compensate for that. Mm -hmm. And I can see other star level guys who are going to have a say and an ability to dictate where they land looking at Atlanta and just being like, you know, sure, that's Trey's team. You know, why doesn't why let's let Trey lead things? You know, I I don't necessarily want to go there for the next five years of my life. That's so fascinating that you took that angle because when you were talking about the New York Knicks as the team that was doing the kind of one year and team option and rollover deals um, and they couldn't really sign anyone good, like what was going through my head is like they don't have a Trey Young and that is why. And so we're kind of coming at this from exact opposite angles. Like I would be, I would love to, if I was like really good, I would love to play with Trey Young. I think he's super unselfish and he has great vision. And yes, Michael, you're going to yes. be expending so much energy covering for him on the defensive end. You're <laughs> exhausted. You're not even going to get some shots up. I'm a selfless guy, though. That's the thing. It's okay. Don't even worry about it. All but- right. So we just got to find the one selfless superstar in the NBA <laughs> to play with Trey Young. Can I? Can I know we want to? We have to move on pretty quick. But I, can I throw one other uh, star? Like who would? potentially be available who i threw in my column and my editor did not cut it out so i know it wasn't that insane please so the los angeles clippers were attached to chris dunn and rajan rondo um in the past five or six months as being interested um and i think that that is really interesting because if i'm the clippers and let's say like they go, I don't even know, they start the season 10 and 10 or something. I could totally see Paul George being dangled. And I could wow. totally see I could totally see the Atlanta Hawks being like, we will give you John Collins, DeAndre Hunter, Bogdan Bogdanovich, and Rajon Rondo for Paul George and Lou Williams. Like, I think that a trade like that is one of those, like, uh, you can't even really conceive it type of trades. But, like, when you really break it down, it kind of makes sense for everybody. Look, I was just writing this chapter in my book, Bubble Ball, Michael, about the Clippers collapse, about just what a humiliation it was for Steve Ballmer after everything that he had gone through putting that team together and Mm -hmm. how my initial instinct after they lost was that he was going to revert to his cutthroat executive ways, right? And say, look, someone's got to, no excuses allowed. Some some heads got to roll here. We got to figure this out. And I think it took him about two weeks to fire Doc Rivers, uh, at least part ways with them. Um Look, I think everything could be on the table for the Clippers. I'm not necessarily projecting a a Paul George trade. I think they're going to want to at least give it a second year to see how the mix works. But uh, it would be fascinating. And they're definitely in a shakier spot than I think most people realize because of the upcoming free agencies of Kawhi and Paul George, because of how they came out of last season. And every single guy there was talking chemistry, 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 right? That was like the biggest issue for why they bombed out of the bubble. Um, You know, you look at the, the players that they're bringing back, they're missing some important pieces. I'm not sure they made major roster upgrades in any way. And the main two guys, Paul George and, and Kawhi Leonard, the chemistry starts with those two. They need to show that they can make each other better and that they enjoy each other's company, right? And we didn't necessarily see that in, in year one. So 
Um, I like where your head's at. Uh, I do think Kawhi is still going to drive the ship there. And so I guess it really kind of comes down to if, if he wants Paul George there, Paul, Paul George isn't getting traded. Uh, yeah. But, you know, we'll, we'll see how that unfolds. I still think they're going to be a, a top two or three team in the Western Conference. So I'm not going to go the full you know, trolling that, that you're up to right now. But I think your your point here that Atlanta has way more assets than most people are giving them credit for, and they could put together a really enticing package yeah. for a great player is right on the money. And I just think uh, if Trey Young can build some more positive momentum, if he can sustain it in the standings and kind of change his reputation as a player, I think Atlanta is going to be in the mix more than they were here the last couple of years for those kinds of moves. But speaking of the Clippers, they did make a small minor move here, Michael. They grabbed Nicholas Batum. Basically, he was waved and stretched by the uh, the Charlotte Hornets. Now, that sounds sort of like a rap dance, doesn't it? Wave and stretch. Uh, but he is out in Charlotte. Basically, Michael Jordan just bit the bullet, You know, got rid of $27 million uh, remaining on his contract. He's going to spread it out over three years. He becomes an unrestricted free agent. The Clippers pick him up. Now, I, I think you believe this is a move that matters, Michael. Nicholas Batum basically didn't play last year. I mean, he was he was taken out of the rotation after, a, I guess, a hand injury. And then after that, he just basically, they, they played the young guys there in Charlotte. Can this be a piece that helps the Clippers? Um, or are we all going to look back and be like, God, this was a really sad ending to his career? I think we talked a little bit about Batum in the last episode, just kind of foreseeing his days in Charlotte as numbered and as someone who uh, st- I think he still has like a lot of talent and a lot of skills that really translate in the modern game. He plays a position of need for just about every single contender. I think, you know, going to a team like the Clippers, they can use as much wing depth as possible. Like it's, it, it could be actually, I mean, you, you, you labeled it as a, a move that matters, which is like uh, a, a um, quite the backhanded compliment, but I think it does matter. I think, I think that this guy can actually play meaningful minutes. He shot 38.9% behind the three-point line just a year ago, um, playing over 70 games. Like, you know, I know he's not like this vaunted three-point shooter, but he's going to get really open looks. He's smart with the ball in his hands. And there's not going to be this like... I guess, like, I don't know what went wrong in Charlotte necessarily. Uh, obviously, he was an unhappy person. And obviously or not obviously, but I think that the contract could have clouded or placed expectations on his shoulders that he wasn't really ready to live up to, and maybe it affected his play. But, like, in Los Angeles, it's just like you aren't – that contract is kind of is what it is. We're not paying you $27 million. We're paying you the league minimum or whatever it is, and uh, you're not going to be, like, the first, second, third, or fourth option. Don't even worry about it. Just be yourself. I think he can really, he's an unselfish player. I think it just makes a lot of sense. And the Clippers should be thrilled that that he came uh, available on the market. No, it's such a strange career for him. I was actually there. My first summer league was his summer league uh, with the Portland Trailblazers. I covered him for a number of years in Portland. And he is just such a, a player with emotional swings, right? I mean, sometimes he would be so excited, so locked in, hitting big shots, you know, making all sorts of uh, valuable defensive uh, contribution, steals, deflections, run up and down the court, dunking and in transition, a really exciting player. And he never necessarily felt like he had star potential, but he felt like a perfect third option, you know, three and D type guy. And he could even play make a little bit. 
the next moment he'd be making just these completely incomprehensible turnovers, you know, passing the ball right to the other team, getting down on himself, having these, you know, terrible shooting slumps. Mm-hmm. You just never knew what to make of him. And then, you know, Charlotte, like you're saying, elevates him into this role, which he was never really qualified for. And they even give him the ball and they're almost turning him into a point forward. And for a while, he's averaging almost like six assists per game. And he's trying to, you know, orchestrate an offense. And you're just sort of like, where is this ever going to go? Um, and, you know, turned out it, it really went nowhere. Then his career just completely <laughs> spirals. I'm almost surprised that he is sticking with the NBA. I feel like he's one of those guys at some point who might go back and, and play overseas and, you know, maybe just have a better quality of life and feel happier. So to some degree, I'm impressed that he's he still wants to, you know, keep this journey going after all these years. Um, and I do think that there will be no pressure whatsoever on him in Los Angeles, which is a, a better situation for him. He's just got to prove that he can still play. I mean, I couldn't believe his numbers when I was looking it up. I mean, he averaged three points, you know, <laughs> yeah, four man. rebounds, three assists last year, shot 34% from the field. I mean, it's just bonkers. So, uh, you know, I guess it's a, a classic buy low and, and hope uh, scenario for the Clippers. And I do think, does it potentially reveal their desperation, Michael? I mean, you know, I I wouldn't say that they were desperate. I don't think like Nicholas Batum is the difference between them winning the championship and flaming out in the second round. But like he helps. I think he can help. Um, And, you know, I wanted it. First of all, there's a reason that other contending teams were very interested in him. So I, I think that there were other spots that he could have landed on. And I mean, the, the first team that I wished he went to was the Portland Trailblazers. That would have been a really cool story. And I think he would have fit in really well there. Um, but no, I mean, I think that I know you want like to hate on the Clippers, but like, I, I just think it's like a, a slight minor upgrade and could be useful come playoff time. For sure. So the other side of the Batum maneuvering there in Charlotte was, you know, they essentially are waving him to facilitate uh, the Gordon Hayward acquisition. And once the dust settled on that one, Boston was able to receive a trade exception. They essentially made it a sign and trade. So they're sending Gordon Hayward to Charlotte, uh, along with some draft picks, Charlotte sending some other pick back and creating a trade exception for the size of Gordon Hayward's contract. Is it true it's the largest trade exception ever, Michael? It is the largest trade exception in NBA history. Okay, I, I, and I, I, is it also true that it will go unused because, you know, this is just another <laughs> tool in, in Danny's kit that, you know, he's going to get everybody excited about. We have to listen to a year's worth of rumors about, and then it just goes unused uh, once it expires? This narrative needs to be put to bed. Um, I, I would be shocked if the Celtics did not take advantage of this traded player exception and add, I mean, they just lost Gordon Hayward, who was a key part of... Uh, who they were as a championship contender. Instead of taking a big step back, I would I would assume that they will be aggressive in trying to fill it with a capable piece up to $28.5 million. Yeah, so let me just explain for people who aren't familiar with trade exceptions. Essentially what it does is it operates independently of your salary cap situation, right? So the, the uh, Celtics right now, they've already paid all their guys. They don't have a bunch of room. If they wanted to go out and sign a player who makes exactly the same amount of money, as Gordon Hayward this summer, they would not have been able to do it. They, they just don't have the cap space. However, the trade exception, as Michael's describing, basically gives you that amount of cap space that you can use to bring in uh, you know, a player by trade. Um, and it's something that the Golden State Warriors actually had. They created a trade exception 
by uh, you know sending out Andre Iguodala. They waited um, basically more than a year because of, of the uh, coronavirus hiatus and all that stuff. And they used that to bring in or to import Kelly Oubre's contract uh, into that same space, right? So for Boston, this is the, the opportunity to go shopping at the trade deadline if it's a guy who maybe is on an expiring contract and a team is just looking to offload salary and, and Boston needs to fill a rotation hole. That's one option. Given the size of the uh, trade exception, they could actually theoretically bring in a pretty important player um, You know, using that. It would be another mechanism, Michael, if they ever wanted to go back and try to grab a player like Miles Turner from Indiana, who they had talked about, right? Uh, he would fit into that. So you're getting into a situation where... <laughs> I don't think so. Not that they necessarily want to do that, but again, had, yes, because the trade with Gordon Hayward and in Indiana didn't work out, um, th- you know, at that point, if they don't have a trade exception, they have no method to go get a uh, Miles Turner unless they're trading one of their core players. Now they have a trade exception. They don't have to part with any players to bring him back in a trade. So I imagine as a green beer drinking Celtics diehard, you already have a shopping list of guys who you're trying to poach and pilfer with this trade exception. Am I right? I do. I have three names here. They're all pretty big, fairly known names. Um, I think two of them are not that realistic, and I think the other one is like circled with a red pen in Danny Ainge's office, and I think that they will go pretty aggressive after him. Um, awesome. So I'll go I should with- also, yeah, real quick. I should also clarify: you don't have to use the entire trade exception, right? You right. can use any portion of it that you want. So uh, you know, you don't have to bring in a guy who's making the same amount of money as Gordon Hayward. You could bring in a guy who's making five million bucks or ten million bucks, uh, and that would still work too. Okay, so who do you got? Right. So my first guy um, is Draymond Green, and. He was actually a late addition to this list. I was kind of scouring through all the players who make under $28.5 million, and I came across him, and I don't think he's super realistic because his contract is very long and, and would bring the Celtics into a ridiculous tax situation. But for a team that wants to win the championship right now, I mean, his fit at the four would be really nice, and I don't know how i mean i look at golden state situation and whether or not they are looking to kind of abandon ship here because you know uh, steph curry is a free agent after next season clay tom thompson might not ever be the same player um off this achilles injury and draymond green is 30 years old um getting older by the day so if they wanted to kind of blow it up or just kind of refashion what they are on the fly and the Celtics were willing to offer a young talented lottery pick plus a future first or something like that I think that uh, because this is such a unique situation where they don't have to make the salaries match it's an intriguing possibility so now you come to the question though from the financial side and uh, most trade exceptions go unused because it does put owners in a situation where if they're going to take on that extra salary outside of the salary cap it does potentially you know incur luxury taxes and and other yes. they just have to pay for it. you have to pay to play and so usually the only teams that use trade exceptions they're either facing like crazy injuries up and down the roster and they've just got to bring a body in or they're right there on the cusp which the celtics are i mean you know they're you can make a case they're a piece away from winning the east right um, you know, they, they decide, hey, it's time to go for it. 
you don't usually see teams bring in guys on super long-term money with trade exceptions. That may be coincidental, um, but I think usually it's it's kind of like a one-year investment or a two-year investment. So I think my biggest skepticism on this proposal, Michael, is you just decided you didn't want to pay Gordon 120 over four. Do you really want to bring on Draymond for 100 over four, right? Because um, that's a lot of risk, not only this first year, but, you know, cascading risk with luxury taxes you know, going forward into the future. Um, don't you think ownership would kind of look twice and say, wait a minute, like Draymond's not the same guy he was two years ago. You know, is this really the person we want to be spending all of this money on? And then what does he look like two years from now? Yeah, no, I mean, I could see ownership balking. And that's one of the reasons why I don't think this is super realistic. And also Golden State's asking price would be, I think, pretty much higher than what the Celtics would be willing to give also. So it's just it's it's just kind of like a pipe dream one and I, I it made me just daydream about the possibility of Draymond in Boston, what that would look like. My thing is if I was Golden State, I wouldn't have paid the Kelly Oubre crazy price that they did to bring him in. And then I would if I had waited two weeks and known that Boston had this trade exception, I would have called Danny immediately and been like, let's dump Draymond. I don't even, not even asking that much. Let's just figure <laughs> this out. Because personally, I would have tried to tank for Golden State this year, but they, they don't look like they're trying to do that. Um, no. But the thing is, look, if this season goes haywire and it doesn't go well and things are ugly, uh, this trade exception and, and possibly moving Draymond down the road would be available next summer as well. Okay. What are your other two nominations? So next up is LaMarcus Aldridge. In San Antonio. Ooh. Um, so that one fits what I'm talking about with the short-term yep. money, right? You're basically renting a guy on a one-year contract and plugging him into the hole. Does he fit with everything else you've got going on there in Boston? So I've been, I go back and forth on it, honestly, and I don't know how much LaMarcus has fallen off defensively. The player who is like, who I'm theoretically thinking of, who won't have as many offensive responsibilities, can still be an effective rebounder, an effective spot-up shooter. I think he'll take a lot more threes in Boston. His role will be more clearly defined. And, you know, he can play the four and the five. And I think you could have really interesting lineups that are huge with LaMarcus at the four, Tristan at the five, or, or Tice at the five. Um, Jalen Tatum and like a Marcus Smart or someone else um, manning the point guard position like that's just a huge versatile uh, group that just makes a lot of sense like I don't think it's the most perfect two-way lineup Um, but I think that just LaMarcus particularly in the playoffs he's just someone who you can dump the ball to in the post and really work your offense through him and even if he's willing to come off the bench or something like that which that's you know that might not ever be a possibility or realistic but like he just adds a different dimension dimension to your offense and lets you play a lot of different ways and like I'm just thinking of like a Tatum Aldridge pick and roll would be pretty effective I think so like well, That's so like kind in, of in the in fourth head. quarter of an Eastern Conference Finals, would you rather have Tatum watching Marcus Smart shoot threes or LaMarcus shoot and turn around jumpers? <laughs> I hate you so much. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm teasing. Look, I, I actually I like this idea. Do you know what it reminds me of? Do you remember when Toronto in 2017 uh, made that trade for Serge Ibaka? And he was in the expiring year of his contract. They brought him in at the deadline. They basically used it as a test drive to see how well he fit. And they also kind of had an idea that they're going forward that they wanted to resign him to a contract. Um, you know, that wound up paying real dividends for them, not that particular year, but a year or two down the road, obviously, when they won the title. I'm not mm-hmm. sure the Aldridge situation, given his age relative to what Ibaka was at that time, yeah. 
Um, you know, it might not be the same kind of long-term play, but if you're Boston and at the deadline, you can just inject real talented player to your front court, see how it goes, and then kind of pick up the pieces in the summer. Um, it wouldn't be nearly as expensive, you know, cumulatively as a Draymond Green move. And I think it would make some sense. I like that one. Um, and I do think, I mean, we've said this time and again, Aldridge should be very available. And uh, a trade exception would make it easier to trade because, again, you don't have to send back, you know, multiple players to match his salary. All right, who is your last one? So this is the player who I was referencing earlier. Danny Ainge has his name circled in red in his office. And that is Aaron Gordon, Orlando Magic. Um, Two-year deal that declines to 16.4 in 2022. Uh, I just have always been enamored with his fit um, in a place where he does not need the ball, nor will he get the ball. (laughs) So, you know, like offensively, uh, I think he can do not all that Gordon Hayward could do, particularly as a scorer and a shooter and a creator, but... He's like, you know, he can be a a, a pick and roll dive man, um, plays above the rim, can improve your 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 team on the glass. Um, he is not a terrible spot up shooter. You can throw him the ball. Uh, uh, you know, he can attack a, a closeout and really do some damage in the paint. Like he's a good finisher. So I think that Aaron Gordon would just be like a real nice complimentary fit if he was able to accept that role and he's not a terrible passer either. Um, Defensively is really where this just shines and sparkles. And I think that Boston would have the best defense potentially in the entire NBA if you added him there. Um, I mean, you're basically in a situation where Gordon, Tatum, and Jalen Brown, and Marcus Smart are are all all defensive team caliber players who can... I mean, if you're in a series against the Brooklyn Nets, for example, like the bodies you could throw at both Irving and KD would be just... I mean, that's just that, that's the best you could do right there. So I, I, I love it for Boston defensively. I think financially it works. The question is what Orlando wants, and that's one I do not know because Orlando is a team that we or I continuously am mystified by uh, on this podcast. So does Boston have anything good they could send back for Aaron Gordon? Like, honestly, if you are Orlando, I don't understand why it's like, just take Romeo Langford. Like, it's a younger player who's a lot cheaper, who it's like, where are you going with Aaron Gordon? I I, I, I don't understand um, their trajectory at all and how they're kind of building. What I, I don't get it. So I would offer like Romeo Langford or I would offer... Uh, I don't even know. I don't want to offer Grant Williams, actually. But I would, I would offer Romeo Langford and be like, take Romeo Langford. do better than it's that, a, Michael. A, I mean, come on. I, you're painting a really pretty picture of what uh, Aaron Gordon looks like in that in that lineup with Boston. I don't you think Orlando's going to say, come on, if, if the roles were reversed, we would never do this trade. I mean, we need to get some, like, you know, really good draft assets or something. I mean, Aaron, Aaron Gordon's got some real value, doesn't he? I don't think so. I really don't. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but... You know, there was that rumor about the C.J. McCollum for Aaron Gordon deal that just was not getting any traction in Portland. Like, I, 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 I mean, watching Romeo Langford's barely an NBA player, Michael. Come on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Subbed into, uh, I, we don't have to go down a Romeo Langford uh, rabbit hole here, but uh, obvious potential just oozing out the ears for him. Um, 
But no, Michael, uh, like, he averaged 2.5 <laughs> points last year and he shot 35%. I had to even just double check to see if he played in the NBA Inju- last year. In- injury prone. It's okay. Once he gets healthy and gets right back on track, the, the sky's the limit for him. But no, I think that more importantly, like Aaron Gordon's trade value as someone, you know, we watched him in the bubble. It wasn't very pretty. And he has been so confused about what he should be in the NBA and what he wants to be. I think in Boston, if you had some more role definition, he could be excellent next to Tatum and next to Brown, and he's not, like, super old either. Um, so if you want to keep him, you'd have his bird rights. It's just, like, a perfect situation for Boston. Well, here's what happened. Danny got you an Amazon gift card for Christmas, all right? He, he got you all excited. You're trying to have your little shopping list and poach all of your favorite players that you've been thrown into trade, uh, you know, trade scenarios and fake trades here on this podcast for months and months, Michael. It's not that simple. It takes two to tango. So get your offer up for Orlando. I actually like that Aldridge one better than the other two um, because of the the financial situation. I just think it's, you know, owners are so hesitant to use those things because Mm -hmm. taking on the future money, uh, you know, it it locks you in and it just has an effect on your other decisions, right? You head into next summer and now you don't have as much flexibility uh, because you you kind of have already committed to, say, a Draymond Green or even an Aaron Gordon in the situation because he has that second uh, year on his contract. It just kind of puts you behind the eight ball. I think even executives are a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit nervous to do that because usually, you know, you are kind of dumpster diving a little bit, you know, with those trade exceptions, right? You're getting a player like Kelly Oubre who's bounced around from multiple spots and is not the most Mm -hmm. uh, desirable guy. And so if you're, you're spending the money to grab him, uh, you know, you got to make sure that it's really worth it because you don't want to put yourself uh, in a situation where you kind of can't back out of that corner down the road. We'll see with Boston. It's definitely a factor to keep an eye on. I'm going to be laughing all the way to the bank if they don't use it. So I really hope they get somebody. I will also laugh <laughs> if it's just like some complete non-factor player that they wind up using it on. I think there's going to be some pressure on Danny to use it to some degree, right? After all these you know trades don't get consummated and they get leaked every single year, you're trying to put that storyline to bed. It's a fact, Michael. There's more unfulfilled trade uh, rumors coming out of Boston than any, any other team in the league. And so at some point, you've got to uh, give the people something to show for your work, right? I, is the Eastern Conference Finals, like, is that not, that's not good enough for anybody with one of the youngest teams in the league? Is that... Is that disappointing? Well, that, I, I noticed recently Boston had some new jerseys. And if I'm not mistaken, the City Edition the City Edition jerseys are based on the championship banners, right? That are up in the they, rafters? They are, yes. They They're are. not based on third place trophies or fourth place They're, trophies for they, making the conference finals, right? <laughs> I mean, come on, Michael. You gotta you gotta aim higher. You gotta see your team get over the hump. You don't wanna be the the largest market, small market team in the league, which is how they act right now, letting Gordon Hayward go when they're on the cusp of the title and you know getting everybody tantalized with this uh, trade exception. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see, Danny. You better spend that thing. All right, Michael, we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. Thanks so much for those suggestions on the trade exceptions, the breakdowns of the Atlanta Hawks and everything else. Guys, check out Michael's story that's upcoming on the Atlanta Hawks. And also check out my Washington Post newsletter, breaking down what's to come for the Brooklyn Nets and what should be a pretty exciting season. Uh, Michael, they can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. 
Tab five stars is just that easy to help us spread the word. Now, Michael's on Twitter and Instagram at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golver on Twitter at Ben Golver. Go to my Twitter page, sign up for the free Washington Post newsletter. It comes every Monday. I hope you will love it. Michael, they can email us openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. All right, Michael, until later this week, as the media days start around the NBA and it's time to gear up for the new season, I will talk to you. Talk soon, man. All right.